Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Women's Room on Yas FM this afternoon. Hope you've been having a good day. You're with Kath. And in the Women's Room this afternoon with me, I have uh, the very well-known Patria King, who is a household name in many households. Uh, I'm very thrilled and excited to have Patria on the radio this afternoon to talk to us in the Women's Room. Thanks for joining us, Patria. Oh, it's lovely to be with you, Kath. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Um, so, Patria, as I said, you are, you know, a household name in, in, in many households across Australia, and you've had a very adventurous and colourful life, I should say. Uh, <laughs> but for people who are not aware of, of you or what you've sort of done in your life, I wondered if you could just give us a little bit of a background kind of potted history um just for so the the listeners out there aren't aware of Patria she cured herself of cancer many years ago and has since then has gone on to help not only herself but countless other people in the work that she's done so I'd like uh, to talk to Patria about some of the amazing things that she's done today so Patria if I could just sort of take you back to where I believe found yourself uh meditating in a cave in Italy many years ago if you could sort of just cast your mind back to those days and just give the uh give the listeners a little bit of a background into what kind of happened uh in your life to get you to that point and then mm. what happened after that to um wind up with you setting up the foundation that you have mm. big question big question so take your time <laughs> well you know there's a big difference between the bones of a person's story and the flesh that hangs off the bones because I can rattle off the bones now, the sort of history of what happened, uh, but the it's in the flesh that all of the emotions hang. And because I've done a good deal of work over the years on myself and understanding what happened and why I ended up the way I did, uh, I can rattle off the bones quite easily. The, the fact is I grew up with a, a brother who probably invented ADHD 20 years ahead of anyone knowing what that was. And Brendan spent his childhood falling off the roof, falling out of windows, cutting himself, setting fire to the place, painting it with lipstick. Every morning, I remember sitting in my high chair, watching this drama unfold every morning. The moment my mother's attention was distracted, the porridge plate would go over Brendan's head and then there'd be all the frustration of getting him cleaned and changed, etc. And... So I think I did invisible. As a little girl, I tried to have as no needs at all, tried not to be a bother at all because Brendan was a big bother <laughs> and he filled the house. Mm -hmm. But Brendan told me before we were both 10, he told me that he knew he had to kill himself by the time he was 30. And as a very tiny little girl, because I was even very, very small for my age, I remember thinking I have to grow up really quickly to look after Brendan so that that doesn't happen because I absolutely adored him, but also found him very scary. Mm. Anyway, I did. I grew 23 centimetres over the next few months, and that deranged the bone growth in my legs, and my knees started dislocating, and I couldn't stand up or walk. And so I left school at 13, went into uh, Dalcross Hospital, and had three years of having my femurs cut and my lower legs rotated outwards and then my tibias cut rotated inwards and they did that all over again. So there were 12 major surgeries over those three years, which was fantastic because I got to read all the books I was actually interested in. Mm. Um, I was always preoccupied with why are we here? What is this business of being human? And why are we so mean to each other and to animals and to 
the environment. So I read Krishnamurti and Alan Watson, um, Thomas Merton and the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and lots and lots of books that spoke more about the meaning of life. Anyway, I had to learn to walk again. Brendan was in and out of psychiatric hospitals, attempted suicide on several occasions. Uh, we rescued him each time. I was then sexually assaulted while I was actually in a back brace at a church fellowship meeting in a house with people in it. And if I'd had a voice, someone would have, and called out, someone would have come and helped, but I just didn't have a voice. I was so used to, shh, be quiet. It'll be over soon, whatever it is. So I didn't tell anyone about that for years. That was my first sexual experience. I was quite crippled with arthritis, which is why I studied naturopathy to see how can I help my own health. Um, Brendan was still in and out of psychiatric hospitals. I got married, had two beautiful children, um, but my husband was a little bit violent every now and again. Uh, so that was a bit unfortunate. Brendan did finally succeed in taking his own life when he was 32. At 30, he got happy. He found meditation, cleaned up his whole life. We all went into that space of, oh, thank heavens, Brendan's okay. And then, of course, when we got the phone call from Kathmandu, it came as a total shock to us. There was no body, no funeral, no memorial, no possessions to pack up. So it was very hard to take on the reality of his death when he was alive and well in Kathmandu, and then he just wasn't. And But in a way, I also felt he was now just safe in my heart, and that brought me a measure of peace as well. Just after Brendan died, my husband and I and our two small children moved to America to do our yoga and meditation teacher training because I knew the mind had a lot to do with our physical health. And, you know, I, I changed my diet radically. I'd got rid of a lot of the arthritis. Um, now I walk without any. Um, but I knew the mind had, because at one stage I was in traction for nine months and I knew that I'd have to go back to school when my femur united and there was just no way I could cope with school. I just found it was too many people. They were interested in talking about things that I didn't have any interest in. And so adult company suited me very well. So just after that, we moved to America. My We'd only been there four weeks when I thought my husband had gone for a walk, but he'd gone back to Australia with the money, leaving me with two small children in a little geodesic dome out in the desert in oh. this community. And just after that, I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia and told I wouldn't see Christmas of that year. And contrary to your introduction, I don't feel like I cured myself of cancer. Um, when I was first diagnosed, for a moment I was relieved because I felt like a lot of people, I lived with a very, very private reality and I worked so hard to keep the outer facade highly polished so that everyone would think I was okay and I was not okay. Mm. Um, but I didn't even have words to explain how I felt on the inside. So leukaemia really brought my whole life undone. And I did end up in that little cave outside of Assisi in Italy where an old priest took me under his wing and I spent seven months in that little cave, about 18 hours a day. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever wept because in our family, my mum's 101 on Sunday, and in our family, we don't cry, we cope. 
and we're terrific copers. I've never seen my mum cry. And, but I couldn't keep the tears at bay and I wept buckets. So I wept and meditated for seven months. Um, when I came back to Australia, I was in an unexpected remission. And I found that actually more challenging because by then I had my whole life all packed up in this little suitcase all ready for the big trip. I'd given my children, my possessions, my husband had insisted I sign over all my assets to him before I died. Um, and then I was faced with, well, the plane got cancelled and I was faced with how much do you unpack the suitcase? How much do you live with any confidence in life? And of course, after a little while, I realized that everybody lives with tremendous precariosity. They just don't know they do until they do. And I imagine you and many of our listeners know that life can change in a breath, in a moment, in a conversation, mm -hmm. and it's never the same again. And that's how it became for me. So that journey of healing really was about, I just yearned to find peace. I didn't mind dying although my children were only four and seven. Um, I still lived with chronic pain. I was very tired of that. Um, so it was my mother who said after about three months, have you thought of working, dear? And I found that very challenging because I thought, how can I start my life again when any moment I'm going to go out of remission? And anyway, I went into practice as a naturopath and then my people turned up, people who also lived in the transit lounge of life, people who lived on the edge of their mortality, the edge of helplessness, powerlessness, hopelessness, people who lived on the edge of insanity, madness, despair, um, anguish. And these were all places that I was familiar with, not for them, but for myself. It's never helpful to say I know exactly how you feel, uh, mm -hmm. but I was more willing to explore anguish and despair and all of these emotions that people experience. So as a naturopath, I began looking at people with cancer, people with HIV and AIDS. How can we minimise their physical suffering so that we can get into these deeper issues? And my question to people has always been, what is it that stands in the way of you being at peace? And sometimes it was a physical symptom. So, you know, we'd address that. And then now what is it that's standing in the way of you being at peace? And those conversations got ever deeper into those existential questions of who are you? What are you doing on the planet? Are you living the life that you came here to live? If not, why not? And what are you going to do about it? And I've always found those questions very meaningful for myself and it seems also for others. Well, yes, <laughs> you can, um, once you start asking those questions, there's, uh, there's no end, isn't it? You can just always go deeper and deeper each time. That's right. That's right. And I think a lot of people, you know, are half expecting to go back to how the world was, but I think most of us are feeling that life has fundamentally shifted on the planet and that we're not going back to 2019. And the fact is, after any major trauma, and we've all experienced a major trauma, for many, it was drought and then fires then floods and COVID and lockdown and separation from loved ones and fear of health and death. And so 
we never go back after trauma. We do need to process the emotions of what we've experienced so that we can then move forward in a more informed, wise, insightful way. And I think that's where we are right now is I think, you know, in our conversations with many people who come to Quest, there's a sense that people are, are waiting for the other shoe to drop or, you know, what's going to happen next. And there's certainly a higher level of anxiety, irritation, things like insomnia uh, that are really troubling people at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So before we talk a bit about that, because and because you've just mentioned Quest, uh, just for listeners who aren't aware what it's, so Patria has set up, or many years ago, a foundation called the Quest for Life Foundation and has a retreat centre in uh, Bundanoon in New South Wales in the Southern Highlands, which is an amazing place. So Patria, how did you sort of... Um, get to that progression of of deciding to set up the the foundation in the first place and mm. and having a place for people to go and start hit their mm. healing journey you know i was so grateful that i was given a safe space when i was really in the depths of despair and illness and this old priest had taken care of me a stranger and when you nearly die and then you don't, you know that happiness isn't about the stuff. And yet we all work so incredibly hard to get the stuff. Then you have to dust the stuff and then you want the latest <laughs> model stuff and none of the cords from the new stuff fit the old stuff and vice versa until the whole planet's pretty much stuffed. And you know that that's not where happiness lies. Mm. And so what gave me joy was to see people move from feeling a helpless victim of their circumstance to feeling an empowered person who could make choices and choose new directions. And so I saw thousands of people on a one-to-one -one basis with cancer and AIDS throughout the 80s and 90s. And I ran 10 support groups a week uh, for support and meditation groups. Um, at the Albion Street AIDS Clinic. I worked in Long Bay Jail with prisoners with AIDS for a couple of years because they wanted the same services that were being provided for people with AIDS outside of the jail system. Um, and then we moved to Bundanoon and I'd been looking at properties for years, not that we had any money to purchase anything, but I just wanted to create another safe space where people who are feeling a bit desperate, whether it's because of illness or childhood trauma or recent events or grief or loss or whatever it is, that they could come and find a pathway forward for themselves. And so uh, when we moved to Bundanoon, I'd made the decision not to work from home because up until then I'd had 200 people through my lounge room every week. And this place, beautiful property came on the market for 1.5 million and Quest, uh, which is a, a DG1 charity, uh, only had $15,000 in the bank at that time. But I just knew that this place was meant for us and meant for this work. And some wonderful people came along who made it possible for us to purchase and renovate the centre. And that was uh, 22 years ago now, in fact, 24 years ago now. And Yes, I just feel so grateful that we can provide a safe space in which people can 
utter the unutterable and have it witnessed and heard by others and not judged or, you know, we know our job is not to try and fix people or because if, they, if we thought our job was to fix people, we'd be seeing them as broken and I don't see them as broken. Um, I know my own suffering has been really what helped me to know myself in my depths. And that's been a blessing on a good day. Not much fun when you're going through it. Mm. But, you know, now I think um, it's wonderful to have this safe place where we provide programs for people dealing with various forms of trauma, whether it's the trauma of a life-threatening illness, um, PTSD, we get a lot of police, domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual abuse, motor vehicle accidents, um, all kinds of people with post-traumatic stress injuries to the brain and nervous system. Uh, we have another one for people with grief and loss and anxiety, depression. Uh, so people who are at a crossroads in their life and who are wanting to improve the quality of their life uh, travel from all over Australia and sometimes from beyond uh, to attend our programs. We have 34 five-day programs a year, about a dozen three-day programs for carers, and we do about 100 workshops out in communities after floods and fires and during the drought and so on to help mm. people build their resilience and manage their life circumstances more skillfully. Mm. So that um, uh, incredibly generous donation to go from 15,000 to 1.5 million yes. <laughs> has, has really uh, ended up helping um, countless, countless people by the sounds of it. Um, if you've just tuned in to Yas FM, I've been speaking with Patria King, the CEO and founder of the Quest for Life Foundation in Bundanoon and finding all about her fascinating life. Um, so you mentioned before about it, you know, we'll be uh, people, we were talking about COVID just before I we started on the radio show and, uh, you know, talking about that some people feel that, you know, they're just sort of waiting in this transition, waiting for it to come back to 2019. Um, but basically it's not going to be 2019 again, as you just referred to before. I just wondered what you thought, Patria, about, and you mentioned working from home and how you didn't want to do it, no doubt, if you had 200 people in your living room every, every week. Um, <laughs> but I've been thinking about working from home that some workplaces I know now uh, that, I mean, I work from home myself, so I'm not really that um, directly experiencing this, but many of my friends who were previously working in the office and and now used to working from home and the workplace is now changing this is the public service workplace is now changing that the that the workplace doesn't actually want people to come back full time and they're deliberately downsizing offices making hot desking thing like this mm. so that people need to work from home and only come into work some of the week um but for me, I'm I'm recently finding working from home to be increasingly isolating. And I'm wondering, sure, we survived sort of through COVID by allowing people to work from home, but by encouraging them to say work from home, I know that it helps flexibility, but I'm wondering now whether it's a two-edged thing and that it's going to make it harder for people to um to come as close back to normal as they were and to get over that sense of isolation and everything. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, indeed. I think you're exactly right, Kath. A lot of people kind of enjoyed the novelty of working from home. And certainly there are some definite positives in that you can be in your rug boots or uh, have your top half dressed, whatever. 
Um, but uh, there are some very serious downsides as well. You know, humans are social beings. We need to be with each other. We need to be in the presence of one another because, you know, we're first and foremost, we're consciousness enmeshed in the physical. We know that consciousness can be measured many feet out from the body, that electrical field in which our body exists. And we transmit a lot of information and you know how sometimes you can intuitively pick up what's going on for other people when you're in their presence mm. if you're still and, and quiet within yourself so I don't think it's going to be a successful model to have us isolated and I think people need to really recognize that if they have a job like that it will be imperative that they create social connection in other arenas of their life if it's not in their workplace. But I know many workplaces now, uh, there's hardly anyone there. There are all these empty desks. There's this different feel in the building altogether. Uh, in some buildings, all the plants have gone because they don't want anything that needs to be taken care of. We need, we need to take care of ourselves, of each other, of the environment, of nature. We, we, we need to feel connected. And I think we may lose greatly if we're going to insist on people working in isolation. It's not good for people's mental health to do too much of that. Most of us find that we can be much more productive when we do a day at home because we might have less interruptions or whatever, but having it as a full-time commitment to work at home I don't think is a healthy thing socially, unless you have lots of other social connections. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I can feel myself, I've been working from home for 15 years now and I, and I loved it for a very long time, not having mm. to deal with those office dramas and politics and all that kind of yeah. thing. And of course it was very convenient while the kids were young. Um, but now with both kids in high school, um, I'm finding that, you know, I'm sort of thinking about maybe I should be looking for a job that's not at home, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though, of course, it's very advantageous. And I am wearing my Ugg boots, as you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, so um, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's it is very interesting because there are different times in your life, too, where those 15 years working at home when the children were young, that might have worked really well for you. Maybe it doesn't work so well for you now. And we need to adjust and, and be willing to change and to keep that inner listening ear in on ourselves of do we feel that we're in the right place doing what we want to do with the people that we want to do it with, you know, back to those questions. Are you living the life you came here to live? If not, why not? And what are you going to do about it? So, yes, I think we're at a time of enormous flux and change. We know that Klaus Schwab from the WEF has clearly said that we will not be going back to 2019, that we're going to move into a more digital world where we'll all be digitally identified. And I'm not sure that's the world that we want because human beings are incredibly creative, they're collaborative, they're cooperative. And I think to limit us um, it has, has some dangers with it as well um, because as individuals we each make a contribution to life 
and homogenizing humanity, I don't think is going to be an answer to the challenges that we do have on the planet. Um, mm. You know, we know that there's plenty of food. Nature is incredibly abundant. We could feed everybody on the planet if we chose to, but we don't choose to. Mm. It's not that we need genetically engineered food that you, you know, they're, they're working on seeds that you have to buy the seeds every year. Whereas every farmer, uh, I remember as a child in between surgeries to my legs, I used to be sent out to my godmother's property out at Merriwar in New South Wales. And we would often stand in a field of wheat and look for where the, the strongest, most vibrant wheat in the entire paddock was. That would be the wheat that was collected to provide seed for the next year. But now, of course, with many of these places that want to genetically modify our food, they modify it so that you have to buy seed every year because it's not fertile. Mm. And, you know, again, this is a huge mistake because farmers have generations of knowledge about how to grow healthy animals, healthy crops, healthy soil, because that's where human health starts, in the soil. If you don't have healthy soil, how can you have healthy plants, healthy people, healthy mm. animals? So... Yes, I think we need to really be mindful of the kind of future that we want to create after this pandemic, uh, because we may have a future dictated to us otherwise, and that might be a future that we don't particularly want. Mm, yeah, it can be um, a, certainly painting a grim picture with some of that. And the thing with the seeds also is that when you, when farmers are, you know, choosing the seeds, as you were saying, about choosing the best wheat seeds and all that kind of thing, mm. um, that will be responding to the environment in some way of, of what those seeds have been grown in. And um, they may, the best seeds may vary from year to year, whereas just mm -hmm. buying the same sort of type of seed yes. uh, isn't necessarily going to work in you know, in all the different areas and that kind of thing, because it's only sort of designed for one type of environmental conditions or one type that's of soil right. or whatever it is. So that's right. I mean, apples, um, apples are a great example of that. There are over 700 varieties of apple, but because there's big supermarkets, they want red ones, green ones and yellow ones. Mm. And so then the orchardists pulled out all of these wonderful heirloom trees just so that they could grow red ones, yellow ones, and green yeah. ones. But we're yeah. losing that huge epigenetic diversity that used to feed our cells when we limit ourselves to what is commercially a wonderful idea. But as far as human health is concerned, it's not a good idea at all. We mm. need to eat seasonally. Mm. You know, when I was a girl, we'd eat mangoes for about three weeks because they were only around for mango for three weeks. Yeah. And when we eat seasonally, we challenge our immune system in a mango kind of a way for three weeks. Then we moved on to the next fruit and then the next fruit and then the next fruit. Now you can eat mangoes for three, four months. And yeah. maybe you're challenging your immune system for far too long. Mm. Also, with our major supermarkets, uh, they have access to refrigeration, irradiation, gassing, and a lot of the food is in the fridge for two to four years before it's released. This is fresh food onto mm. the market. 
Mm. And, you know, you wonder, well, how much goodness is in an apple that's been in the fridge for four years? So yeah. I, I think these are a... things we need to think about. We need to grow whatever we can. We need to eat locally if we possibly can from our local environment. We know that the honey that uh, it comes from your own environment, if you have hay fever, uh, that's the honey that you should have because the bees have already pollinated all of those flowers that normally give you hay fever and you've got an antidote to it through the honey. So mm. when we eat locally, when we eat whole foods, when we eat organic foods, because the, the soil should be alive with life and with worms and you won't mm. find that sort of soil anywhere now. Mm. It's, it's dead soil that's stimulated through fertilizers to produce. And it's, it's not good for human health. And I think we're seeing a lot of chronic illness because of the foods that we're actually eating. Yeah, I, I did read that there was, I mean, you mentioned about the 400 or 500 varieties of apple that overall there's so many hundreds of thousands of varieties of food that we could eat, but worldwide there's probably only a few hundred <laughs> fruits yes. and vegetables. That, yes. that are eaten instead of the many thousands that, that could be. And I go to the supermarket myself and I just think everything just looks a bit lifeless and not appealing. Um, yeah. But of course, you know, not everyone has um, access to affording, you know, organic food or even has access to where they live. I mean, where I live, um, there is sort of a couple of supermarkets, you know, uh, within a half an hour or 40 minutes drive but there's um no you know uh local organic fruit and vegetable shop for instance yes. um so yes. if you can you know it's good if you can do it um but i feel sometimes that yeah the the food that you bring home um is the best of what you can get but but is it really is it really good enough yeah no um, it's it's yeah. quite different from when i was a girl definitely mm, mm, yeah yeah same um so uh, if you've just tuned into YasFM, I've been speaking with uh, Patria King on a range of very different things. So before Patria, you mentioned about epigenetics, and I and I know that in your programs you talk a lot about the science behind some of the things that can really help people um, improve their mental health and and live. Uh, you know, a bit with a bit more ease, a bit more peace in in mm. this world that we have today. So mm. I wondered if you would just like to talk to that a little bit and explain to the listeners what the, the theories about um, neuroplasticity or how the brain can change and epigenetics and what this can actually mean for our well-being. Because mm, it's so exciting, really, Cass. I mean, last century, we believed that you were born with so many brain cells, and we killed them off with too much partying, too much alcohol, too many <laughs> drugs, whatever. Now we know that every single day, your hippocampus produces between seven and 800 brand new little neurons that will gravitate to the part of the brain that you're using to strengthen the connections in the part of the brain that you're using. Now, the key to this is you are using your brain rather than your brain using you. So we do need to train our brain to be in our service rather than running the show because it makes a wonderful servant, but a shocker of a master. So we know now that if we're going to be present, which is engaging our executive functioning brain, that's called your task positive network. And that's where you have access to insight, intuition, wisdom, humor, spontaneity, 
creativity, compassion. We also have this other system that we're very familiar with, the default mode system, which is the unconscious, the ego, uh, what happened to us in our childhood, what we made of what happened to us in our childhood, the I'll be happy when story, the chatterbox in your head that's always judging you and other people. That's the default mode network. But we can train the brain to have our task positive, our executive functioning brain, which is really the bridge to our spirit, to our essential nature. Uh, what's in the default mode network is second nature to us. And you'll hear people often say, oh, it's second nature for me to feel like this, think like this, react like this. And no one ever questions, well, what's your first nature? We mm. talk about that second one, like we know what that one's about. But you see, you are consciousness enmeshed in the physical. And when we engage our task positive network by coming to our senses, which is what we say to people who are caught up in the default mode network, come to your senses because your body's always in the present moment. And even while we're listening, we can be aware of our bottom on the seat, our feet on the floor, the touch of our clothing, the movement of air against the skin. Perhaps there's a taste in your mouth or an aroma in the air. Notice what falls within your gaze, all the sounds close by, far away. The moment we do that, we engage the task positive network. So we have these two systems in the brain that cannot function at the same time. We're either in the default mode network, the unconscious, the past, or we're in the present with access to those wonderful qualities, insight, intuition, wisdom, humor, spontaneity, creativity, and compassion. And also last century, we thought all diseases were genetically determined. And if we could just find that problematic gene and snip it off, with this technology called CRISPR that they have where they just remove a gene from our DNA, then we'd have world peace. We'll be able to get rid of the anxiety gene, the bowel cancer gene, the breast cancer gene, whatever the gene is, we'll just snip it off. Uh, if only life were so simple. <laughs> yeah, now we know cool. from epigenetics that it's actually the environment around the cell which is made up of or impacted by the quality of your sleep, your exercise, your nutrition, what you're eating and drinking. It has the chemistry of your emotions, the chemistry of your hormonal system, and the chemicals that we're exposed to in the environment, in our food, in our personal care products, whatever it might be. That's all that is in that epigenetic environment. And that's what's giving information via receptor sites on the surface of every cell of your body. And that creates a chemical electrical environment within the cell that will tell the gene whether to express, whether to remain suppressed, or whether to modify its expression in some way. So again, last century, we were helpless victims of our genes. This century, we're co-creators of our health. And if we take good care of our, you know, you're not your body, but you've got one, you need to nourish it appropriately, you need to rest it, you need to exercise it. You're not your brain, you've got a brain, we need to quieten it down. So we have access to those qualities I mentioned. We need to keep our brain in good company. Don't hang out with turkeys. Be in company that uplifts you, inspires you, encourages you to move in the direction that you want to move in. Uh, you're not your thoughts, you have thoughts, you're not your feelings, you have feelings. 
And so, of course, that does beg the question, well, who am I if I'm not my body, if I'm not my brain, if I'm not my thoughts, not my feelings, not my memories, not any of this? And that's a great question. Who mm. are we? Mm. And the consciousness that enlivens you is the same consciousness that enlivens me, that enlivens all of creation. And if we really understand that, then how could we do to another what we wouldn't do to ourselves? So. Yeah. I think oh. we're, you know, at the verge of this. Um, it's as much a quantum physics perspective that everything is energy as it is a spiritual perspective that everything is energy. And it's this beneficent energy of love, which is the highest intelligence on the planet. And mm. so it's so important for us to connect with nature because that's where we come to peace. That's where we feel replenished and renewed by nature. Mm. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? And so at the basis, I guess, of, of all of this, as you're saying, coming to your senses, which is such a beautiful thing, and I was feeling myself doing it as you were describing it, um, that is, however, a very, I guess it's in the moment, but it's short time, as in, I can't sit here all day coming to my senses because I then won't do anything else. So the step in between sort of that, for me, that's kind of like an initial thing, which I then might use to get myself into a meditative state and practice a meditation. So meditation is very big, isn't it? In the, in the quest for life yeah. um, programs, a basis for how we can help the brain to to retrain and how we can reduce the amount of stress hormones circulating yes. and increase the amount of of what we would call happy hormones or yes. we call them serotonin so so for you patria i mean you obviously have meditated a lot in your life you know starting with this seven months in this cave or maybe you were even doing it before then you said you were going to be yoga mm -hmm. meditation teachers so it's obviously been a part of your life for a long long time Yes. Um, how would you define meditation? Because I know a lot of people say, oh, I can't meditate, you know, because I, my, my mind's too busy. So, and I always believe that that's not true and that um, anybody can meditate because it's mm. not about emptying your mind uh, of thoughts. It's just about observing that they're there. What's your sort of definition or, or take on meditation and perhaps <laughs> some of the good ways or effective ways that people can incorporate it in their lives easily? Mm -hmm. Look, I think meditation is a wonderful tool uh, to train the brain, to train our consciousness to engage that task-positive network, the executive functioning. That's where logic, reason, perspective, history insight, intuition, all of those qualities, that's where it is. And I personally practice coming to my senses constantly. So when I'm walking, I'm just walking. When I'm, you know, so I think you can come to your senses constantly in the middle of a conversation. Uh, for me, I suppose for me, it's been an, an imperative as well, because if I don't move consciously, I rip ligaments and tendons in my legs very easily. And so even micro movements, I have to be aware, otherwise I can just rip ligaments so, so easily because I'm very hypermobile. So that's on a good day. My knees have been a great blessing to me because they've forced me to be in the present moment and move consciously. So I do believe we can learn to engage our task positive network and have it engaged all of the time. 
and then we're just not thinking. You know, thinking is terribly overrated, and the sooner we all stop it, the better. We <laughs> want to use our brain and not be used by our brain. So a lot of that inner chatter isn't thinking. That's just unmanaged electrical activity that's going off in the brain. But once we engage the brain, and people do that by the breath, you know, maybe deepening the breath, maybe being aware of the air flowing in and out of their nostrils. But it's just whatever brings you into the present moment. It's the same as when you're, you know, if you're riding a wave, if you're a surfer, you know, when you're on the wave or if you're sailing a boat or if you're whatever you're doing that requires you to be in the present moment. That's why we do that stuff. We love doing that stuff because we're in the present. And we can train the brain. I was very fortunate to find meditation when I was 17 because I, I had several out-of-body experiences due to intense pain. And so I knew I wasn't my body because sometimes I was on the ceiling watching my body go through these terrible cramps I used to get when I was in traction. And so I found that quite confusing because I could see my body. So therefore, I wasn't my body, but I wasn't sure what I was. So you know, 53 years of meditation has been a, a very um, precious, and in fact, I think it's 55 years now, a very mm -hmm. precious part of my life. And certainly, um, I know that I'm not my brain. Uh, and I know too, that I can use my brain. And that is a joy to me. Mm. That That is a many, many hours um, on the cushion, as they describe it. That's right. <laughs> And I don't, just on that, I don't meditate in that way now at all, because meditation is a tool to get us to be utilizing the task positive network all of the time. Once we're in that place where we're using the task positive network, we find that we've got boundless energy, time for everything. Um, and we've got access to those really useful qualities when you're facing a crisis or a confusing situation or a critical situation. We want to have access to insight and intuition and wisdom and humor and spontaneity, creativity, compassion. So we can train the brain to be in our service. And that makes a huge difference to how we can live our lives. Mm, mm. And so for people who really, the ones who say I can't meditate because mm. their minds are so busy and full of thoughts. What yeah. would you say or recommend is the, as, apart from coming to the senses yeah. or a type of regular meditation practice, do you think is there one way that's better than the other or just could you suggest a couple of ways that people might, might start um, mm. and not mm. be put off by the constant, incessant, what did you describe it as? Unmanaged electrical activity, which is yeah. fantastic. <laughs> Well, the Indians describe the brain as a wild drunk monkey swinging through treetops. And mm. I think that describes many a person's brain. And so the first thing I'd suggest is stop saying you can't meditate because you're telling yourself that you can't. Mm. Uh, I'm learning to meditate. And people who say, look, that was a hopeless meditation. My mind was so busy. I had to keep bringing it back 50,000 times. Well, that was a fantastic meditation because that's what the practice is, bringing your attention back over and over, just as you'd train a little puppy. You wouldn't rouse at the puppy. You wouldn't tell the puppy that it was a bad puppy. You just constantly train it to do what it is that is going to make it a, a happy animal in your household. So 
take that attitude. I've got this default mode system, which is my unconscious. I'm learning to engage my task positive network and meditation helps me to do that. So it may be coming to your senses. It may be the breath uh, because we're breathing all the time. So just focusing on the flow of the air, the pauses where the inward breath turns to an outward breath and outward breath turns to an inward breath, being aware of those pauses, maybe letting them lengthen a little. Uh, so any activity really that brings you into the present moment. You know, one of the sessions we do in our program is we have people reflect on what are the qualities when I'm at the end of my tether. I drink too much, I drug, I don't sleep, I get cranky, I cry, I swear, I uh, get irritable, I'm more judgmental, intolerant, impatient. People can rattle off all of the things they do when they're at the end of their tether. And these are all the symptoms of not being present. This is when we have an emotional backlog that we haven't dealt with. And then we get them back into groups to look at, well, what are the activities, environments, the things that I do or have that connect me to my essence? Being in nature, listening to music, making music, singing, dancing, ritual, prayer, yoga, sport, exercise, counselling, journaling, whatever it might be, these are all activities that bring us into the present moment. And so we get people to write up their half dozen favourite ways of replenishing themselves, their half dozen favourite ways of uh, exhibiting stress so that they know that about themselves. And then it's our responsibility to divvy up our 168 hours every week. We checked it out internationally. Everybody gets 168 hours <laughs> every week. And your job is to divvy those up so that you replenish yourself first. Fill mm. up your inner bucket first. And then you're only ever giving from the overflow. And you become far more efficient. You've got time for everything, time for everyone. Uh, it's just a much, much more skillful way to live. Mm, absolutely. And and it is it is hard work though, isn't it, to to actually realize that it is you who has to do it. Yeah. And that nobody can sort of meditate for you, as it were. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you have yeah. to do that hard work yourself. And and when you're not feeling well, of course, to begin with, it's it's even that much um, more harder to uh, to get to that stage. But mm. I think you know it's just something that that honestly, there's no excuse, but you just have to do it. My um my Tai Chi teacher often says to me, you know make make an appointment with yourself it's like making an appointment with the doctor or any other professional in your diary make an appointment with yourself yes. that at this time this day you're going to meditate or practice or whatever it is so yeah. Yeah. um yeah it's something that we really have to work at isn't it it definitely is because if we don't look after ourselves we're either hoping our partner will the world will the government will someone will see us and look after us and you might wait a very long time. It's not their job. It's your job. Each of us need to take responsibility, our ability to respond to the life that we're having. And there were plenty of days, Kath, when I was so sick, I, could, I couldn't, if I sat down to wash myself, my mother had to dry me and get me back to bed. And, and sometimes it was just, there goes a breath in, there goes a breath out, there goes a breath in, there goes a breath out because my life was reduced to just hanging on by a thread, really. So 
I know the truth of this for me. I can't know it, obviously, for anybody else. Mm. But I know in sharing an understanding of neuroscience, an understanding of epigenetics, an understanding of how powerful we can be in more skillfully managing the challenges that we do have in our life, uh, that's a very satisfying journey. And what else is there to do between now and death? but liberate ourselves from all of the anxieties and limitations and judgments and beliefs that we collected as little people. And we want to be present. We want to make a contribution and we want to feel that we've connected with that authentic nature within ourselves and that we're not just reacting to life, that we're able to respond more skillfully moment by moment but we can only do that when we've already replenished ourselves physically mentally emotionally spiritually whatever that is for the individual mm. well it's certainly a beautiful concept and, and one that you're obviously living <laughs> uh every day as well Patria. and to and to overcome all those early challenges in life i think it's just absolutely inspirational that you've ended up and and still helping people um, every day. And for some reason, I just don't think that you're ever going to be stopping. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is such a critical time, frankly, on the planet. Mm. I think we are at a huge choice point of whether we're going to be free, sovereign, creative beings or whether we're going to be managed uh, in a much more limiting fashion. And I think that we need to choose the freedom of our creativity to find solutions to the problems that we have, rather than have solutions imposed upon us that may not be uh, so comfortable. Mm, absolutely. Let's hope that this that the right direction, uh, that we can all take the right direction. Well, Patria, thank you so much for coming on YesFM and chatting to us today. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. We're going to be heading to the news in a couple of minutes. But um, I would just like to thank you so much for coming on. And no, if people, yeah, and if people are um, keen to find out more, then probably just Googling Quest for Life is probably the easiest thing that they would yeah, be able to find our, you. Our website's questforlife.org.au. Yeah. And we're very happy to have a conversation with people anytime. And also don't let finances be a reason not to pick up the phone because we have a number of grants that enable us to accommodate people from rural areas or people from domestic violence backgrounds or sexual abuse backgrounds and so on. So uh, please be in touch with us. And if ever we can be of service to you or those you love, please be in touch. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me, Patria, and best of luck in your future endeavours. Uh, thank you, Kath.